Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 26 of Mike Check on Sports. I'm Steve Napolitani. The PGA Tour resumes play this week in Fort Worth, Texas, and Major League Soccer has set July 8th as the date to return to play. They are set to have a tournament in Orlando at Disney's Wide World of Sports. MLS Commissioner Don Garber is hopeful that all teams will be able to play in their home stadiums following the tournament. My next guest played his entire career with the New Jersey Devils. He's a three-time Stanley Cup champion. He is Mr. Devil. It's MSG and NHL Network analyst Ken Danico. Dano, how are you? I'm doing pretty good under the circumstances like everybody else. Uh, just hoping we can move move forward and things get better and hope everybody's safe and healthy and we can see some hockey in the near future as well. <laughs> yeah, and since the pause on March 12th, how have you been spending your time? Oh, boy. Well, certainly a lot of Netflix um, series along the way. That's something I didn't usually do a whole lot of, but I've watched with my wife uh, so many good shows along the way. Started with Ozark way back. It seems like two years ago. <laughs> I wish that, you know, one of my favorites and uh, love Jason Bateman. He happens to be a big hockey fan as well. And I have... Uh, on occasion over the years, uh, crossed paths. So he is a big hockey fan, but love that show. And then there's so many other good ones along the way, but it seems so long ago. That was the first one, uh, right when the pandemic started that we got through pretty quickly at home, but really, you know, a couple of things. I mean, one thing at my ripe old age of 56, you always want to work out a little bit more, but you never find the time to, or take the time to do it. And that's something I've done a lot more of. I've gotten into the treadmill, the Peloton, and uh, again, pushed by my wife and I've stuck with it. So, you know, you look for little silver linings and, and, and just to keep you, keep you sane. Uh, I've probably worked out uh, from a running standpoint and I'm not really a runner more than I ever have in the last three months. And that's a good thing, especially when you get a little older, you want to keep active and and uh, keep the body moving. But the problem is I have that mentality all or nothing, always have. Right. I think a lot of professional athletes do that when you can only do a half or less than a half of what you used to do, because you go right back to 20 years ago when you were playing your playing days. And I'm like expecting to go full bore and the full sweat. And my <laughs> wife keeps trying to explain to me. You don't have to go till you drop because you might really drop till you're 56 <laughs> years old. You know, it, it's just to stay active and exercise and keep your body going. And I go, I know it's really hard to get that mentality because my mentality was go till you drop. When I trained as a player or, or actual playing in the games and the competitiveness, and that's the mentality. So I've got to learn to balance it a little bit and trying so far getting a little bit better at it, but, <laughs> but I've, I've been working out and spending a lot of time with my two dogs. I'm a big dog lover. I have uh, two dogs, Puck and Stanley, only fitting nice. hockey names, uh, one for Stanley cup and one, obviously the hockey puck, but I have a Westie and a golden doodle and uh, they keep you sane as well. I mean, uh, they, they uh, always put a smile on my face and, and certainly being around my dogs again, they're probably saying, uh, Dad, when are you getting out of the house? We always loved you here and hated when you used to leave, but it's time to time to get out of the house a little bit more. But but just trying to stay active like that, doing a lot of certainly, whether it be Instagram videos with uh, uh, people that have shows or, or podcasts like, like coming on today and a few radio interviews talking hockey or, or 
you know, everybody needing content. So you want to help everybody out. Mm -hmm. And certainly it's good for me too. It's like, uh, it's like therapy because, uh, like everybody else. And I feel for people that, you know, out of jobs and things going on and, uh, you know, you need to stay mentally healthy and, and sometimes you need that distraction of reminiscing about the Stanley cups or your career or whatever it may be. So I've been doing a lot of that along the way and, Great. Uh, really, I guess that's kind of it in a nutshell and uh, not a whole lot more to do, but doing some devil stuff. I do do, you know, again, I work with the organization and I do the broadcast on MSG, yes, but also work for the devils themselves. So we've done funny videos. We've done all kinds of things. We did a stay-at-home defenseman series for mm. four weeks of, of funny videos, and I came up with the content with my wife, and they came up with a few. So, so that was fun getting to try to be creative and again it was just to to lighten the load in, in these unprecedented tough times for everybody and and hopefully make them laugh a little bit <laughs> for, for sure and then you were born in ontario but grew up in edmonton were you practically raised on skates or did you play other sports as well i, I was a sports junkie i mean i i know growing up in western canada i used to always say there was 10 ken danico's 10 ken danico's in every corner yes i was born in windsor ontario and started half a first grade before my father was transferred to Western Canada in Edmonton. So I didn't spend a whole lot of time, six and a half years in Windsor, but yes, that is my birthplace. So I take pride in that, but I really always say I'm, I'm from Edmonton because I grew up, grew up out West uh, as my father was transferred there as he worked for the airlines at the time. So, so there was uh, in Edmonton, certainly 10 Candanicos in every corner, all kids for the most part, we know it's a religion up there and, and all kids love hockey. And if, when you came out of your mother's womb, if you didn't put a pair of skates on, <laughs> I don't know if there was a whole lot more to do really, but, but I was just like a lot of young kids, uh, just had a incredible passion for the game and outdoors and 20 below weather on the outdoor rinks in my community and then on the ponds and, uh, a lot of stories I'm sure you've heard from other Canadian kids growing up mm -hmm. uh, loving the game. And that's kind of certainly was me um, along the way. But I was a big baseball player, too. Oh, I know yeah? people didn't think we played played baseball and actually was, uh, you know, I humbly say I had some pretty good talent. I was a left handed pitcher and and kind of and excelled certainly in Canada. And, uh, it was it was a love mine. We couldn't play as much. But they were always in command of left-handed pitchers, and mm -hmm. I, I'd been approached a couple of times in in my teens about you know possibly college in the states for baseball and things like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I did understand it was one A, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, then when I did play play a little in the states, and I, I could dominate in my area in Alberta and Canada at times, and then you you go where baseball's a religion where they play every day and i understood that oh boy there's a lot of good players around now having <laughs> because i did go to a few you know tournaments and things one in montana and, and uh, throughout and I, I just now guys are starting to hit my curveball i'm like what the hell they they they, they couldn't do that in canada where i <laughs> came from so i understood hey but everything's tough right and, uh, but I certainly had some ability, and they're always in demand of left-handed pitchers. And and I love the game, still do to this day. I'm a big New York Mets fan, and 
started out as a Montreal Expo fan, believe it or not, when mm. they were the only team in Canada when I was a young kid. But right. had all, all the baseball cards had everything. So I loved it. I mean, I'm going to say one and one A. Oh. Hockey was number one and baseball was one A. And uh, played a lot of hockey track and field in school. So I was one of those guys. And I, we preached to parents. A lot of us old timers preached to parents. Very important. And now you see the kids playing 11, 12 months a year right. in camps. Too much. And, and I think they believe that growing up in Canada, that's all we did. We played 12 months a year. That, that was not the case at all. Once hockey season was over, April or whatever it may be, or even earlier than that, that was it. Four or five months in the summer, it was baseball. It was soccer. It was track and field in your schools, whatever it may have been. I was a wrestler as well. So hmm. I kind of tried, tried everything. I loved uh, sports and uh, considered myself relatively athletic. So uh, whatever came my way. And I think it's, it's healthy for, for that athleticism and not just focus and get burnt out from one sport mm -hmm. like the game of hockey, even though I was so passionate about it. But all I would do is go to a hockey school for a week in the summer and then that was it. One, probably one week as a kid uh, of five months of doing other sports. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, uh, that's basically how we did it out in Western Canada. Now, now I see it because it's so competitive and I love that. And I love the game of hockey has grown in the United States by leaps and bounds grown in Canada. It's, it's grown everywhere, but certainly here being here so long in Jersey. And I hope the devils have been a part of that. And I think we have as far as, really growing the game and you're seeing so much talent now but but i always try to recommend the kids and their parents you don't need to do it 12 months a year because you can get burnt out it's a tough physical sport and it's a grind right and then age 15 you joined the saskatchewan junior hockey league <laughs> was that a tough decision for you to leave home or was that oh boy um well i got a great story with that if we got time we got but time i i've got a lot of good stories however i I've been told to write a book many times, and I just I put pen to paper with the guy and never, never finished because I want to tell more. So maybe down the road, five, ten years, <laughs> and really in my retirement. But no, this is a you know a story. back then, and things were different. Everything evolves, and you know, parents today, you would, including myself, and I have a twenty-six-year-old daughter and a twenty-one-year-old boy. But when they were fifteen years old, and whether it was sports, whether whatever it may be that uh, I'm going to go move away from home to, to play in a the Saskatchewan junior hockey league, junior hockey at 15 years old, I, I would say you're nuts and right. you don't send your kid, kids away at 15 too often anymore. Back then it was a little different. And if you had that opportunity, it was a possibility, but I'll tell you, my mother certainly didn't want it. So I got it. I was part of the great falls American organization that was in the western hockey league where mm -hmm. a lot of guys get drafted they only lasted about a year but there was no draft for junior hockey back then so they had my rights they they put you on a list at 13 or 14 years old right mm -hmm. so yorkton terrors was affiliate of them the Saskatchewan junior hockey league a lot of greats came had played in the Saskatchewan junior league and a lot of tough guys i mean chris chelios played for the moose jaw warriors and two tough guys dave brown joe kosher both played for Yorkton at one point or another. I didn't mm. play with them on the Terriers at the time, but I, the Great Falls Americans, I just finished Bantam AA. Their general manager there had said, look, we feel you can skip midget. And, you know, I was excelling and I was big and physically mature. 
that we want you to go right to junior hockey. Now there, there was only at the time one 15 year old that played in the sketch in junior hockey league. That's true. So I was hmm. only one of two players that year that was 15 years old. So it is a big jump and the league, you know, we watch the movie slap shot and we always say it's <laughs> over exaggerated. Well, it wasn't that far off hmm. besides having a lot of talented guys that came through there. It was nasty. It was physical. And, and so I'm, it's a weekend. I have a weekend to decide this. Uh, they said, we want you to go to Yorkton. So I talked to my father and who's still alive, nine years old and, you know, uh, battling along here. He's been through a lot of strokes and everything. Well, he's Eastern European born and raised or born and grew up in East Germany and then defected to West Germany. And so he's an immigrant came over from Germany at 22 years old on his own. Didn't speak a word English. So hockey wasn't his thing. Until he got to Canada, he learned to love it. So his son loved it. And he just said to me, I said, Dad, you know, I have this opportunity to go to Yorkton, uh, but it's 500 miles away, and I'm, the coach is going to come pick me up and actually drive me to Saskatchewan hmm. uh, to play for the Yorkton Terriers. And, you know, he, he talked to my – I mentioned it to my mother briefly, and she said, over my dead body, you're leaving <laughs> at 15 years old. and <laughs> And uh, true story, and so I'm going, oh boy, I'm going to upset my mom here. And and my dad took me aside, you know, a little later. He says, what do you want to do? And, he says, and, you know, my dad was just kind of that man of few words, very stern guy, and just said, Kenny, what do you want to do? You know, uh, what you, I want you to make your decision. He said, Dad, I want to go. I mean, I, I think I can pursue a career in hockey, and I think this is the next best, best hmm. step for me. So... I was one of those young kids, you know, everybody wanted to be home and stay with friends, and I had plenty of friends and everything else, but but I was going to do whatever it took, and it was a sacrifice as well, not right. just for my fam- my parents, but for me to go somewhere I've never been, don't know anybody, right. drive with the co- coach who I've never met <laughs> from Edmonton to, to Yorkton, Saskatchewan. But I told my dad, I want to go. He goes, well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take you to me. He met me at a drove me to this meeting place a gas station outside the the city and and the guy from uh, jerry bullets was his name came to a very nice man loved him my first coach and junior picked me up my dad dropped me off he picked me up and on our way to saskatchewan we were hmm. he we didn't we didn't tell my mother he didn't even tell her really he, hey, he says he goes don't worry i'll deal with your mother huh. yeah we couldn't I, I couldn't even say bye to her it was really hard because wow. She was going to make it very difficult, and I don't think she spoke to my dad for about two weeks. But everybody got over it, and they came to visit and watch me play. But but it was one tough, nasty league. And if I could survive this league, I knew I was on my way. We had 70 players that year playing our team. Guys would just start playing, disappear. We go, what happened to Charlie? What happened to Johnny? Oh, they couldn't hack it. It was too tough. You know. Wow. <laughs> So, yeah, some great stories. But, yeah, that's kind of how I left home, just on, on a whim with two days to make my decision. Wow. But the the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League, every province in Canada, Manitoba, Alberta, had their Tier 2 Junior Hockey Leagues. A lot of them affiliated with certain – the Western Hockey League. Or, you know, we know there's the uh, Ontario Hockey Association, the Quebec League. So those were the three major junior teams. Well, this was a farm team, and I was, I was young for the league because now I'm 15 – I might have been physically mature enough, and, and I was playing pretty good hockey and really developing. But I'm playing with 17, 18, 19-year-olds, even 20 at times hmm. in the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League, and that's a big adjustment. That's yeah. a big jump. So mentally, I was still a kid, 
but it was a great experience. I played all 60 games that year. I survived barely. I mean, it was nasty, like, like I said. Did and you think I about really, going home? I didn't. I was not. I hadn't. I mean, I, you know, as we moved along, I my heart and mentality was I'm going to make it. And I'm going to have to fight through a lot of things. And, and a lot of guys, yeah, even in Tier 1 Junior when I went to Seattle and stuff, so many guys get homesick and, you know, that's part of the struggle and the grind of there's a lot of skilled, talented guys that I felt could have made the National Hockey League, but, but they weren't ready to go through the process. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and there's a lot of sacrifices in any, anything you do in life, we know, but certainly become a pro athlete, a small percentage make it. And that was my goal since seven years old. That's what I told my mother, not an exaggeration, 20 times a day. I'm going to play in the National Hockey League every year. I told her that from seven to the day I was drafted and, and my mother, um, my mother always used to pacify me, but I think she thought I was dreaming a little bit big and mm-hmm. not being realistic <laughs> at the time. Another great story for Yorkton. So you know who was the our play-by-play guy? They, they had a radio guy in Yorkton, yes. I, I love the city. You build it with families, obviously, so you get a new family, and that is your family. And right. Yeah, those things are all an adjustment and, and can be difficult being away from home. But So Chris Cuthbert. Oh, a yeah. long time, one of the great uh, National Hockey League analysts or, or uh, play-by-play guys, and I love Chris, and he just moved over to Sportsnet the, mm-hmm. from TSN being there so long as, as their number one guy, and he's one of my favorites. I mean, he just calls the game. I'm an old-school guy. Yeah. I, don't need, I don't need all the antidotes. I like guys that just have crisp voices and mm-hmm. call the game. That's more Chris Cuthbert, mm-hmm. like the old-school guys, Bob Coles of – of the world. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. those are what I like. I know I feel it has a tendency going, going more with too many stories. And that's just my opinion. You know right. what I mean? Right. And, and too many answer, antidotes and, you know, whatever goes on along, you know, as far as your thought process, but I love Chris Cuthbert. So he put it on Twitter way back and I almost forgot you forget stories, but he had said, yeah, when I, uh, you know, when we had the, that was the tragic Humboldt crash, and that right. was the league I, I had played in, and it was just so horrific. And he says, I, re, you know, he says, I just want to tell a story. I remember traveling on those buses and those roads uh, during those, you know, the, the horrific time uh, for the Humboldt Bronco team. And, and he said, I remember the first day, he says, I sat beside a 15 year old kid, Ken Danico, and the first words that came out of his mouth, and I don't remember telling you, he said, he looked me in the eye and he said, hi, I'm Ken Danico. I'm going to play in the National Hockey League. That was my first words coming out of my mouth to wow. Chris Cuthbert, who went on to and still having a wonderful career and one of the best. So, that is great. Small world, full circle. But he tells the story to everybody because he remembers it crisply and vividly. I didn't realize. He says, that was the first words that came out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that so, is great. Fortunately, uh, and eventually things had worked out, but I don't know what the heck I would have done if it didn't because, <laughs> yeah, you want to throw all your eggs in one basket. That was me. I, I believed it. I knew as I got to junior where I was big, strong when the game was, you know, a little more physical, I guess you'd say, and, and fighting, yes, was, was prevalent and the game's evolved and I love the way the game's gone and everything. But in junior, I was offensive. I could do a little bit of everything and, when you get to the National Hockey League level, you got to fight. You find out that you can't uh, transfer some of the things you're capable in junior because of your size and who you're playing against, kids your age or younger, 
to the elite league and the best league in the world, the National Hockey League, professional level. So you have to find your niche and your role. And I understood I wasn't the most skilled or talented. And junior, yeah, I thought I was skilled, talented, you know what I mean? But it's about understanding a role. And Lou Lamorello taught me all about that. So to get to the NHL and fulfill my dream, you have to adjust and find your niche. And that was uh, being a good stay-at-home to teammates at times. And and uh, I felt pretty grateful that uh, the New Jersey Devils drafted me at the time, even though I didn't know where New Jersey was back in 1982. <laughs> <laughs> like 18th overall, is that kind of where you thought you were going to go at the time? Or did you have better at Not at all. Team? No? Not at all. thought I was going way lower. I didn't even – I was cautiously optimistic. That's one thing I was. I'm very confident and believed in myself and had the heart and character to want to play so bad and, and had that mindset since since a young age and the sacrifice and the work ethic it, take, it takes. That part I had, but as far as self-doubting a little bit, I was one of those guys, I hope I get drafted. I heard I'm – that's when there was no social media, obviously, no mm-hmm. cell phones, the technology. It, they relied on scouts in each region. That was it. There was no mass central – scouting bureau now they know when you eat sleep go to the bathroom and <laughs> they know everything about you besides watching you play and they have all the film they didn't have all that back then right. you know what i mean so <clears throat> obviously they relied heavily on scouts scouts put their jobs on the line and in fact burt marshall the scout for the devils at the time who's in his 70s who played with the new york islanders as a defenseman Still scouting for the Carolina Hurricanes. Well, he, he stuck his neck out for me, and we laugh about it today. And when we had the draft in 2012 in Newark uh, at Prudential Center, mm-hmm. I saw him and I wanted to make sure uh, I thanked him and told him how grateful I am for him believing in me because I believed mm-hmm. in myself. He believed in me. But the Devils didn't want to take me there from what I heard. That's how mm-hmm. the story goes. They had 18th overall, there was 21 teams at the time i thought maybe i could go late second round but i was thinking maybe third or fourth round really i I had a really good playoff yes i was you know pretty tough and played a physical game i know every team kind of liked that aspect of it they always even if you're a raw if if you had some physicality to you you might get an opportunity because that was an important element uh getting drafted in those days, if you didn't have the elite, elite skill, you know what I mean? Right. So I thought maybe, but you know, I, I didn't care where I was drafted. I, I, but I did have a lot of self doubt from there. I, I would just always believe like, I'm not going to be disappointed where I go. I just want to go. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And when I got the call for 18th overall, they didn't even have a team name yet. That was right. just moved from Colorado. It was just Rock New Jersey, to, right? Just New Jersey. And that's when, like I said, I get an early call. In the morning, Marshall Johnson at the time, and um, my pick, my mother picked up the phone. I was sleeping. The draft was in Montreal, same time zone as, as New York and New Jersey here, and said, Kenny, I think you should take this call. It's in the kitchen. I said, Mom, it's a friend playing a prank. I looked at the clock. It's only about 30, 35 minutes into the draft or 40 minutes because they did it a lot quicker back then. Right. Got the players going through. I said, "It's not. I'm not drafted yet. She goes, Kenny, come down and take this call. So I pick up the phone, and I said, congratulations, Ken. You've just been drafted 18th overall. I dropped the phone, told the story many, many times throughout my my retirement, but I dropped the phone and looked at my mother and said, you're not going to believe this. I've just been drafted 18th overall. She goes, 
And my mother, who's never swore in her life, uh, God rest her soul, said, you've got to be bleeping kidding me <laughs> when I told her, because <laughs> she knew that was my dream. She and then, and then she said, I had tears in my eyes, and she goes, well, ask who it is. I picked the phone up again and go, oh, yeah, by the way, who was this? I didn't care who the heck it was, and that's a true story. I didn't care right. what team it was, who it was. They were going to give me my opportunity. They go to New Jersey, and they didn't have a team name, and that's when I covered the phone again and said, Mom, where's New Jersey? I was just drafted by them. So, yeah, those are all good stories and, and when awesome. I look back. But, like, for me, I would have ran the 2,000-plus miles it was from Edmonton, New Jersey, just to get my chance. I mean, this is all I wanted from seven years old on. And people forget you get drafted. You may never get a game in the league or a right. cup of coffee because only a small percentage they get drafted actually make the team mm -hmm. eventually. You know what I mean? So that's being realistic. I think sometimes people believe you get drafted, oh, you're, you're going to be on the Tampa Bay Lightning or the New York Rangers or the New Jersey Devils. Well, it doesn't work that way. Like, I don't know if, I don't know what percentage, but I'll bet you it's under 10% that actually is drafted, make, actually play and have five-plus years in the league. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So, so drafting is just the first step, but I think it's an illusion to – some fans saying when you get drafted that you're going to play. No, that doesn't mean you're going to play. <laughs> it doesn't even mean you're going to sign a contract. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, the competition's tough. We all know that. Right. But I was just elated the Devils had drafted me. And, again, the Oilers had 20th overall pick. I heard they weren't going to take me, even though I was good friends with Mark, and he would have begged slats and actually told them, if he's at 20, you better take him. Because <laughs> Mark, I grew up with Messier, and uh, he believed in me and knew – knew my character and, and how bad I wanted to play. But, but yeah, so Burt Marshall, the scout of the Devils, stuck his neck out. And they basically told him, and Burt told me this back in 2012, he says, they basically told him uh, at the time in 82, Burt, are you willing to put your job on the line? We don't have him ranked there. We wow. don't know enough about him. And apparently this is the importance of scouts and all the guys uh, that maybe are the unsung heroes and don't get enough credit, but they're the guys that – you know, whether it's the front men, the general managers, the coaches, when things go well, you get the credit. But it's the scout that might have been the decisive factor in drafting a middle-round superstar like so many teams do when mm -hmm. the Red Wings were drafting a lot of guys in the fourth, fifth rounds, the, the Datsuks and, and the Zetterbergs. Well, that's the scout right. that recommends these guys. Well, Burt Marshall drove around in a Winnebago, he told me, for approximately two weeks in cold weather near the end of the season and into the playoffs just to watch me. And he said he watched me closely, watched me in the playoffs, and he said they'd asked him, Bert, you're going to put your job in line? He says, I'll put my job in the line. This kid's going to play for you for 15 years. Trust me on that. Yeah. Take him at 18, you know. So <laughs> I, I, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it because Bert believed in me that much, and I still love the man just for that and, and made sure I hadn't really seen him, made sure I told him when the draft, I think it was, I don't know what year. I think it was 12 or 13 when the draft was at Prudential Center, mm -hmm. the National Hockey League draft, and I saw Bird, and it was, it was you know, heartwarming to me because you, know, you reflect back and you really start to appreciate even more so people that stuck their neck out for me. And then he said to me, he says, Kenny, you kidding me? He says, that pick, I'm still scouting in the league because of your pick because you went on to play 20 years <laughs> and 1,300 games. And, you know, nobody wanted to believe me. <laughs> so I love Bert, and uh, obviously – it worked out because the Devils have been as loyal as can be to me. I've been here a long time, and I wouldn't want it any other way. <laughs> That's awesome. And then you fast forward 16 months, October 5th, 1983. You're making your NHL debut against the Rangers at Madison Square Garden. 
Take us back to that night. What, what were your emotions? What do you remember? You know what? I, I'm, I, if I'm being real honest here, I, I'm not one of those guys. There's a lot of pockets along the way. And I don't know if that's too many pucks to the head or all the partying over the years and early in my career, because yes, everybody knows it's publicly documented. I like to have fun, play hard, party hard kind of thing. So I don't remember every single moment or instance throughout my career, even goals I scored and I didn't score many. I remember the championships. Yes, but actual plays are time. But as far as that, what I do remember, uh, you know, playing your first game, I mean, a dream come true for a, small town kid coming from Western Canada who wanted to play in the national hike league. And you're in Madison square garden, uh, you know, un, unparalleled as far as, you know, the hockey ma- or arena. What do they call it? I, I just went blank. Right. Um, the, the MSG Madison Madison square garden. Yep. Yeah. But no meaning blank. The on world's what? most famous arena. The world's most famous. There, arena. there we go. I just <laughs> see it happens. I go blank. <laughs> But here I'm going to the world's most famous arena to play my first game. I mean, does it get any better than that? Does it get any dramatic? No, our team wasn't very good at the time, and that didn't matter. My mother, who doesn't like to travel too much and didn't like the, the big cities too much, well, obviously she flew to New York with my dad and my, my brother and sisters, and everybody wanted to come watch me play my first game. They had never been obviously too far as far as big cities like New York and came there. And all I know is my mother, uh, just, uh, turned to my brother at the time. I have an older brother, five years older, Peter, and said, well, uh, she goes, I, I just can't believe it. He says, if he didn't tell me once, he told me 20 times a day since seven years old. So it was very special that he's going to play in the national hockey league. She goes, I don't care if he plays another game. I just can't believe he fulfilled <laughs> what he told me he was going to do since a young age. And, and it was heartwarming uh, along the way because, you know, obviously your parents sacrifice so much and driving you to the rink at 5 a.m. And, and trying to believe in what your your goal is in life. And But my mom, like I said, I don't think she thought it was being realistic at the time. So she didn't want to stay too long. She wanted to get back home. But if he, if he, that's the only game he ever plays. He, he made it. And that's what he said he was going to do since <laughs> seven years old. And <clears throat> no she didn't think I'd go on to play uh, 1,282 more regular season games after that and a lot more playoff games. But <laughs> she was just uh, as proud. And for me, yeah, of course you're nervous. Of course the goosebumps. But but just the, you know, stepping on the ice is surreal. I mean, I'm I'm stepping on the ice against guys I'm watching on Hockey Night in Canada right. Saturday. That's, you know, you know I, I specifically remember more so looking back and, and remember playing when we played the Islanders early in the season and, I'm looking at Bobby Nystrom and Clark Gillies, and I might, you know, have to bang in the corners with them. And I was a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, a big fan of Lanny McDonald's back then. You either cheered for Montreal or Toronto, and I actually got to play against them. And I'm going, you know, those those times were surreal. Going, right. oh my God, I can't believe it. I was watching them at seven, eight, nine years old on Hockey Night in Canada on a Saturday night, and I'm actually lining up against them. <laughs> Pretty surreal. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine. So then, you know, like you said, it's no guarantee you're going to play. So you get hurt your first year. Then you think you got to think you're just as soon as you get healthy, you're going to be back. But then you spend some time in the minors. Oh, boy. So many great stories about that. Yeah, How much did that weigh on you? (laughs) Killed me because, yeah, things were 
boom, our team, I think I broke, for people who don't know, I broke my leg 11th game of the year. Ed Hospital, a former Ranger, kind of a big melee and came from the side and kind of jumped me a little bit. Uh, that's my <laughs> my um, look at it as far as, but it was more of a scrum, I think. And we dropped the mitts. I didn't have time to get mine off quick enough. Ended up following, falling awkwardly. My foot got stuck in a rut go back, break my fibula bone. And it was devastating mm. because that's the only thing you don't want to happen early in your career. It's going good. Our team wasn't doing well, but I was playing, getting a lot of ice time, playing very well in the first 11 games, you break your fibula bone and mm. it's a setback. And that's, you know, battling, you got to battle through some adversity, but it, it crushed me because I was really getting my foot in the door and, you know, establishing myself uh, in the devil's organization, the national hockey league, so I break my leg. I have a cast up to my hip for three months because wow. it, it, I didn't need the operation, but it was, you know, I remember, I remember looking at the x-ray and it was just a clean break right in half. Hmm. So, and it was painful. I'll tell you, that was it was in Hartford. So three months of nothing in New Jersey, watching us play. That was the year that we got smoked by the Oilers and Gretz who mentioned the Mickey Mouse organization. It was a blessing in disguise at the time. I said they, we lost that game 13-4. I had a broken leg. Watched the game. I said we would only lost 7-4 if I was in the lineup. I used to joke about that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but it was hard, especially for a young kid. I, I'm establishing myself. I'm only 19 years old. I was things were going pretty well. You break your leg. So late March, I'm ready to come back. I still have a little bit of pain, but you know everything's a process and. I thought I'd get to play some end the last 10 games with the Devils. We weren't going anywhere. They were out of it by December at the time. So they, you know, management and the coach, uh, Tom McVie, I believe at the time, who's uh, just a legendary guy. He's he, the, as big a character guy the game's ever seen. He's still scouting 50 years in for the Bruins at 80 plus years old. But mm. and had that deep gruff voice. But he said, Kenny, I, I told him like I was very calm. A lot of guys thought they. You know, if they're too young and things aren't going well, team ain't going well, you go to junior and you're going to have all the success. I told Tommy, I don't need to go back. I said, I can play. I'm, I'm convinced. I said, and then I pointed to his board and he was laughing. Tommy tells all these stories during my retirement in 2006 when they retired my number. But true stories. And it wasn't arrogance. It was belief. I, I, I said to him, I pointed to that he had pins on the board of all the defensemen. I said, Tommy, I'm the best defenseman you got. How the heck are you going to send me down? I don't care about my my leg. He said, Kenny, because we want you to play a ton of minutes. We're going to be out of it in April. You're going. We, they traded my rights from Seattle to Kamloops because Kamloops, uh, in junior, they were able to get that um, worked out so that I was going to have a, a supposable good run because mm -hmm. Kamloops, you know, had a real good team back then. We ended up. So they ended up sending me back. I played 19 games back in the WHL where I've already played. And I had 34 points in 19 games. Like, <laughs> hard to believe because certainly <laughs> was not an offensive guy whatsoever. But back then, yes, I and I dominated. And we won the Western Hockey League. And we went to the Memorial Cup, played against Merrill Lemieux, didn't win it. We lost it. Actually, Ottawa 67s won the Memorial Cup at the time that year. But it was a great experience, and all that was fun. And, and I was glad, to, you know, I got the opportunity, you know, to compete at the – highest level of junior to play in the Memorial Cup, and it uh, unfortunately didn't win. Then the next year, no question. I think I'm on the team for sure, and that's mm -hmm. part of part of my process. And and a lot of it, and that's when I, you know, angry and second-guessing, you know, 
asked to be traded at times. They send me down. I'm asking, when am I going to get called up? You know, you lose your focus of what you have to do to develop. So I always look back at that time. And, and sometimes it was back then, money was a big difference. It was contracts. I didn't have a great camp, but didn't think it was bad enough not to, to make the team. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And like mm-hmm. I said, I just believed in myself. And the team wasn't very good. A lot of times it's numbers. A lot of times you're the scapegoat. And I think that was part of it because I was making a minor league salary as well back down in Portland, Maine, where I played. Well, when I look back and reflect, it took me another year and a half to be a, or a year and something to be a, a staple on the devil's blue line. It took that, that much time to develop that. And it was a blessing in disguise because I took nothing for granted. Mm-hmm. I, I always worked as hard as anybody, if not harder. I always had that belief in myself, but that frustration, that not understanding, wanting things maybe too quickly, maybe this would benefit me. Like I was complaining a lot. I was, I was angry. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And couldn't understand it. No question. And it was hard. And then you wonder a lot of times I see kids that don't get an opportunity that probably deserve it. Even mm-hmm. in today's game, from the American Hockey League, it's just about timing, and you've got to make the most of it. I'm down there a full year. They called me up the end of the year for a game against the Flyers, and I wanted to get noticed and had a double major. It was against Philadelphia. So now the next year you think I'm going to make it again. Well, numbers again, and a couple months down, uh, kind of the fast forward. And so Tommy McVie, who was my coach in 83 in National Hockey League, coach in Portland, Maine, and we were the Maine Mariners at the time, and he goes – he was very tough on me, but I learned and I still keep in touch and still see him on the road when I do Devils games out west because he scouts out west. And we just reminisce and talk about things. And I thought he hated me. He was always on me, always on my butt. You know, this, you want to play in the National Hockey League and, and you got beat three times last night. You know, he just, that old school mm-hmm. style, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I thought he hated me, but he was tough on me. Well, he, he did it because he believed in me. He said, you think I was going to, ride anybody that I didn't think had a potential to be, you know, a real good player in the National Hockey League. Well, that was his philosophy. That was a lot of old-time coaches' philosophy. So December rolls around. I kept going into his office, and I said, am I ever getting called up here? Because if not, I'm asking for a trade. He goes, Kenny, stop whining. Stop being a baby. Keep working. He says, they haven't called yet, but – they're aware of you. you got to focus on honing your skills here and playing the best and stop worrying about when you're getting in the National Hockey League. But we all worry about when we're getting right. back up. So sure enough, December rolls around. I'm out, actually out a little bit with my buddies. Uh, as I told you, I like to have a little fun. So Tom V calls the captain, Steve DeJour at the time. He says, "Get a, no cell phones, obviously. He says, you got to find Kenny. He's at home, Steve DeJour with his family. It's 1 in the morning. I'm out. Steve knew exactly where I'd be in Portland, Maine with some guys, <laughs> a little local establishment. Yeah. He, he comes in there, hands me a, says, you got to call Tommy right now. And now I'm looking at Steve. Had a few pops in me. I said, Stevie, stop it. I know you're busting my chops. He says, Kenny, and you're pulling my leg. He says, call Tommy. He needs to talk to you about something. Now I'm a little worried. What did I do wrong? Right. Tommy wouldn't have been calling me, especially back then. Things were different. He wouldn't have been calling me about being out or nothing. We didn't have a, a game or anything the next night. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so Steve says, just call me. You think I'd get up out of bed, kids at home, <laughs> to come give you this quarter and uh, call. I go to the payphone. I call Tommy. Deep, gruff voice. He goes, Kenny, get the heck out of the bar. 
get home, uh, get yourself ready. I'll be picking you up 6 a.m. He's got that deep, real deeper <laughs> voice than mine, gruff voice. I'm picking you up. He always made a habit. The only coach that picked his players up, drove in the airport when they got called up because he coached so long in the minors. But that was his thing. He loved it. Uh, to, to me, about, he says, I'll be at your house 6 a.m. <laughs> I am beside myself. I'm like cloud nine, only a couple hours sleep. But what I did do is he's, he says he's picked up, told the story in the, in the papers. Well, he says, I picked up over 500 guys in my career to pick them up, drive them to the airport for call-ups. He says, Ken Danico was the only guy. I packed everything but the kitchen sink. Really? I brought eight, I had eight bags sitting by the, <laughs> the curbside. Tommy comes up with a sour look on his face. He goes, what the heck is this? And I said, Tommy, well, how long am I going for? He goes, how should, how the heck should I know? You play well, you'll be going for 10 years, 15 years. You play bad, I'll see you tomorrow. So now he says, and what are all these bags? He says, he said, Tommy said he'd never seen one. He says, I was the first player that had all these bags. Back. He says, everybody just had a little hanging bag with a couple of suits over their shoulder and a little duffel bag. He says, first guy he's seen cleaned out his, cleaned out his whole apartment. Hmm. So, uh, and he was said he was tempted at the time to tell me to get that crap back in your house, but Tommy said I packed it all in. And this first time he said, I, I mean, I said, well, I'm not coming back. And that's what I told him. I said, I'm not coming back. Hmm. Tommy put all the luggage in the car, and then he told the story. 10, 15 years down the road to the papers, he says I knew he wasn't coming back either, and that's why I packed his damn bags into the car because. <laughs> He says, I just knew it. He was too determined. He was not coming back. This was his time, his own last shot to be to be a, a regular in the National Hockey League on the Devil's Blue Line. And he said, normally I would have told him to put all his stuff back. So a uh, long story, but those are the ones that you remember so well and, and mean so much to you. And Tommy was so instrumental in part me what it was going to take. And, yeah, he was pretty hard on me at times as well. Yeah. Oh. And then in 1989, you guys start becoming a perennial playoff team, get as far as the conference finals in 94, then the shortened season, 95. And now it's June 24th, 1995. You guys have steamrolled through the playoffs. What point did you know that the cup was going to be yours? Well, I, I, you learn. You learn along the way, and certainly in 94 where – We'd had the second best record in the National Hockey League to the Rangers, and, and it was we were on a collision course to meet in the Eastern Conference Finals. CU goes to the Stanley Cup. We're up three two, have them down and out in Game Six, up two nothing in that game, and, and think we're going to the Cup for the first time. And we had a, a great team, one of the best series of all time, I think, in the National Hockey League playoffs ever. It had a little bit of everything: all the Hall of Famers, star players, great goaltending, nastiness. Uh, a rivalry, a hatred for each other, everything that to me is what playoffs is all about. And then we don't put the nail in the coffin. Mark does his thing in game six and calls a shot. It was all of the second half of the game because if it wasn't for Mike Richter, we probably should have hmm. been up five to nothing and that series is over. But you understand it's a 60 minute game. They turned the tide, they took over. And then game seven, coin toss, couldn't have been a better game. Somebody had to win, somebody had to lose. I mean, double overtime. Mm -hmm. uh, can't get any more dramatic that. As devastating as that was, that's part, you know, when you reflect, you don't after the loss because you're, you're crushed. But you see, that was part of our learning along the way that you have to stay even field. You've got nothing, up to nothing game six. 
we're already probably going to the Stanley Cup in our minds. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's all the little things, Stanley Cup finals, and it's all the little things you learn a long way. So come 95, yes, it was a short season. We didn't have a particularly good 48. It was 48 game schedule. Didn't really have a good, particularly good uh, season, but we did get into, we, I think we're sixth seed or whatever it was. So, yeah, we felt we had a little hangover from coming so close the year before and having such a great team and, and losing to the Rangers. Then 95, we were the type of team, like everybody forgot about us, forgot huh? that we were the second best team in the National Hockey League the previous year in the regular season as well and had one of the most epic playoff series against the team that eventually won the Cup in 94, the Rangers, right? So people, all of a sudden, it's, what have you done for me? Lately, we're six seed. We're not going to be that dangerous. Well, we we were the type of team just wanted, just get in, let's get to the playoffs because we're going to flick the switch because we had a taste. And that was part of our process, you know what I mean? And we learned uh, along the way all those little things the previous year. So we were able to turn the switch on. Not many teams do. Everything's you got to go into the playoffs hot. you got to do this. We stumbled going into the playoffs that year. But then we turned the switch on because we had a lot of the same guys and same character and same talent that had come so close the year before and started to steamroll in 95. And and I think we caught a few people by surprise. We'll then come up against the Detroit Red Wings in the Stanley Cup Finals as we're cruising along. Philly, we had a great series to beat them, beat them in six. So that was always our rivalry after the Rangers was the Flyers because they'd uh, had some great teams, and we always seemed to have to get through them during our Stanley Cup runs along the way, but we had a tough series against them and beat them in six. So now we're playing the best team in the regular season by a country mile. The high-flying Detroit Red Wings, the papers, the media gave us no chance. Hmm. And and I, we rem- I remember vividly, we all do, and I remember a couple of days before, we had a veteran-laden group. We had a, just a good combination of veterans and rookies like Jim Dowd and Sergey Breland, just Rolston Guerin. I mean, he was a bull. And then we had McKay's, the veterans, and myself and Stevens and a young Niedermeyer. So we had such a nice combination, Tom Chorsky's. We had great role players. Riche Lemieux were beasts. So we were so sound and solid. We we were like almost chuckling inside to ourselves. The veteran guys anyway going, really? <laughs> the discrepancies that bad? Like, I understand the regular season discrepancy was there, but did you forget what we did the year before? Right. So now Jacques Lemaire made sure, put both teams on the board. He just wanted to make sure. He knew we had a very confident veteran group, quiet confident. We never said anything in the papers. And he put both lineups, all 20 guys on both sides and the extras and guys that were in and out of the lineup. You need 25, 26 to win it all. And we had guys in and out of the lineup too. And he compared guys and talked to Kenny – are you as good as this guy, Rich? Are you as good as this guy, Pepe? Mm. Can you uh, play this? And he went down the whole list in his French accent. It was a great little speech. He just wanted to make sure we weren't already handing the series over and reading what the paper's saying, although our veteran guys were kind of chuckled at it because we were so confident. But we he looked at the board. He wanted to make sure, and then we kind of really looked at the board. It was real. Lamero was a genius like that, and I thought he was just such a great coach. He just made sure we understood. And then now we're starting to see, well, we're actually better here. We're mm. better there. We got better goaltending. Yeah, our defense is better. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, yeah, they got some great stars up front, Eisenman and Fedorov, and go on down the list. But we're looking at the board and going, how are they three-to-one favorites again? Somebody explain <laughs> that to us. And they were <laughs> – I think it was along those lines. <laughs> we, we weren't seeing it. You know, LeMaire made sure we didn't. Now, do we think we'd sweep them? Of course not. But that first game, 
Anytime you can win on the road in Detroit, the, mm-hmm. fa- the heavily favored Red Wings, and we found a way, and, and we we stifled them. And our teams scored plenty of goals. I, I hate hearing about. I shouldn't say I hate it. I care less because it's the same way the game's played today about defensive and trap. And I we never heard the word trap. We were always one of the top scoring teams. Ninety four, we were top scoring. We had more goals than New York Rangers that year in the regular mm-hmm. season. It was close. 2000, we were second in the league when we won the Cup. 2001, we were number one in the National Hockey League. So when they use that terminology, it's like we just sit back. And that's not the case. We always were a top-scoring team under Jacques Lemaire. Mm-hmm. We just were that good away from the puck. And he, it's the same thing, systems and things he did when he the Montreal high-flying, great star Montreal Canadian teams of the 70s. That structure, discipline, playing away from the puck and using your sticks well, shutting down lanes. That's what it was about. I never heard those words. That was media made up. But having said that, every team to this day still tries to emulate it. You need the horses. You need players that can play that way. Look at teams that won the Cup, the St. Louis Blues, the Los Angeles Kings in 2012 were the lowest scoring team in the National Hockey League. I don't care. They're doing what it takes to win. But I just don't think from a lot of our great boards, we're always one of the top scoring teams in the league, which nobody seems to mention. They just get focused on, oh, it's too defensive. They're, right. they're making it tough on teams. Well, I'm sorry we're making it tough on teams. We're that good at the time. But but no, we didn't expect to beat the Wings. But after beating them both games at home in their building and going up 2-0, yeah, I felt we had a good chance. But, but we weren't going to get ahead of ourselves because we learned that lesson the year before. And wanted to make sure we closed it out. We just we just made it difficult on them and stifled a really good, talented Red Wing team. And Scotty Bowman said it after, uh, the, one of the greatest coaches of all time. He says, "I've never been so frustrated in my life." He says, hmm. "We had no answer for the New Jersey Devils. They were that good." And wow. he said, "It's the most embarrassing time in my career because I, I had all these great players that just had no answer for their team, and uh, I knew that was uh, about." Game four, halfway, that we're going to win the cup, and Chambers kind of sealed the deal. Sean Chambers, another unsung hero, scored two goals. We win the final game 5-2, but to win in front of our fans was great. No, not in a million years did we think we'd sweep them. You just want to win. But we went through a lot of lean years. We were a bad team. We were, mm-hmm. we were a Mickey Mouse organization <laughs> at times. And and I think that was actually a good thing because it helped, you know, when Gretz said that, he's, he's a great guy. And he, when he says that, you know what? The truth hurts at the times. And uh, I wanted to be part of the solution. And I was uh, fortunate to be on the teams and not be gone or traded. And I thank God they didn't. When you get to reap the benefits, it makes it that much more gratifying. And it took 11, 12 years of playing to reach the mountaintop. And I realize now how tough it is to win. But I uh, had so many great teammates and great guys. And I was just, like I said, very, very grateful to be part of some great teams. Can anyone who hasn't won the Stanley Cup really understand the feeling of winning it? I don't think so. No, oh. you and, and you realize how you realize how difficult it is. I mean, that's why we talk about we're proud of our sport, but it's the toughest trophy in sports to win because it's four grueling rounds. It's and and a lot of times, yeah, this team might be a little better in paper, but you can overcome that with great goaltending or a great defensive system or a break, a bounce. You need that as well. And that's what makes it great for all fan bases, meaning that especially today's game, I see, yeah, there's some top elite teams, but going into the season, you think there's 12, 13, 14 teams that legitimately have a shot at winning the Stanley Cup, and that's great for fan bases. They believe it going into the season. It doesn't always transpire, but it's not just 
oh, here we go again. It's the, the top three teams, and uh, two of them are going to be in there right from September you talk about. You know what I mean? Right. And, and that happened in other sports. I think our sport's probably more unique like that. Now you're seeing it in other sports too, especially football, baseball, where it is a little more competitively balanced. But at times it used to be the same teams in basketball or, or football that you knew who were going to be there at the end. And now it's certainly changed dramatically in hockey. But we've always had that because there's always been bigger upsets in hockey than most sports. Uh, we've seen and that's great I, I love that just being a fan of the sport yes I root for my team but and, and do the broadcast but being a huge hockey fan I love the stories like the St. Louis Blues winning it mm -hmm. for the first time in their history and, and just watching you know uh, teams overcome uh, a more talented team to be able to beat them like the Columbus Blue Jackets did against the Tampa Bay Lightning and stifling them in the first round and the Lightning had a record setting season mm -hmm. these are things that happen in our league which don't happen all that often in other leagues meaning you know there's so much intrigue along the way I've been part of that intrigue on the good side and part of it on the bad side throughout your career but it's tough I think to understand what it is if you've come close I know guys have come close and lost you get that feeling you can taste it and it's devastating to lose which is we lost in game seven 2001 to the Colorado Avalanche you go that far it kills you. It didn't matter we'd won before. It, it, it's, it's crushing. So you, I felt that agony of defeat. But uh, And maybe your family or friends can feel what you're going through, and maybe they probably understand more than a player <laughs> of what it's like to win if you haven't won it, really. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. that's, your, that's your ultimate goal. All right. So in 1997, you stepped away from the game of hockey to deal with something far more important, your battle with alcohol. How hard was it for you to go into Lou Lamarillo's office and admit you needed help? Well, it was real hard. I mean, hard, you know, hardest thing I've done in my life. But uh, especially I was playing really well, too. <laughs> it was 97. The season was going pretty good. That was one of our best teams at the time. And uh, I thought in our last, you know, when we were formidable for about a 10-year span, the last 10-year span of my career, that was one of our best teams. Didn't work out in the playoffs. But uh, that was a loaded team. I was playing well. And, you know, Lou was on, had the pulse of everything. He was, he was like an, you know, an uncle to me, basically. I'd been there so long. Lou was always very respectful to me. He liked a little bit of my craziness, as disciplined as he was. And, yes, he had me in his office a lot, but, you know, there was a reason he didn't trade me. Lou understood the characters you need and certain players and, and make sure you come to play. And he even took me into his office second year of his tenure around then and, and screamed at me once because he knew where I – I was out late or whatever it may have been. He goes, damn, he says, if if I, I if I had any kind of guts, he says, I'd pick up that phone and trade you right now. And he was threatening me a little bit. And and then he goes, and then he looks at me, I goes, but at 7.30, damn, do you come to play? He says, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> he knew I was out late. But it was never night before games or whatever. I was a guy, the life of the party. I loved to be out, loved to have fun. And until, you know, it becomes a problem and, and, and you never think something can defeat you. I mean, I look, I was, I relied on that mentality of nothing, nothing can, uh, I'm, you know, I'm this big, tough, physical player. I got there with that tough, hard mindset. And Lou Lamarillo said the best words he's ever said to me. And it still makes sense today, maybe didn't as much of the time. He says, your biggest asset is your biggest liability. And that was go, go, go. The motor was always going, the energy, the passion, the drive. But it also could be my biggest liability. It's what made me successful in the National Hockey League and become a pro 
hockey player to begin with, but it also was my biggest detriment at times as far as I believe I'm invincible. I can overcome anything. This is me. I want to enjoy life to the fullest. And then until I found out, I knew, you knew, you know, years before, it's always creeping in. I, I knew I was drinking too much. I knew I partied too much. I knew I enjoyed the nightlife a little much. I mean, no different. A lot of guys you, you hear and see in the 70s, I, I would have been a great New York Yankee, the Mickey <laughs> Mantle era, having fun and, you know, where the media didn't really cover you. And thank God, like I said, they didn't as much back then. We didn't have all that social media. <laughs> so we were allowed to have a little. And don't get me wrong, I had a lot of fun along the way and did some, some things, uh, yeah, you always regret along the way as well. But it was 97, and, and Lou had known. We have talked about it many, many times. And I kept, you know, I'd curb it because hockey was so important to me. I said, no problem, Lou. So I'd stop all summer. I always trained hard. That was one thing. I That's why it says I, I'd burn candle at both ends. Like, I was a guy that if I didn't, I had a motor as far as working out. If I was out to four in the morning in the off season, I was up at the gym at 8 a.m. No mm -hmm. Ifs, ands, or buts. That's just the way I was wired. You know what I mean? <laughs> As you can see when I speak, I speak with passion, energy. I always always had that. So there was no missing days or more. So I had that drive. But when you get older, it starts to catch up, as everybody knows, to you a little bit. And it's not as easy to recover. I could <laughs> recover as a, as a youngster. You know, I'd known in the 90s, long before, you, you, you think about it. And anytime I learn now, when you start thinking about it, thinking – well, maybe I should check this out. Maybe I drank a little too much. Maybe I'm having a little bit of problem with this. And and that was a, a couple of years leading up to even 97 when, when I went into Lou's office. And, you know, he he was he had his pulse and everything. He knew me like a book. I wore my emotion on my sleeve and said, Lou, I, you know, the hardest thing for me, I, I got to do something about this. Uh, you know, I got to take care of myself. I got to see what's going on. Because I always had good intentions. I had a good heart that saying, okay, if there's something going on with me and it's a problem, have, you know, have the courage to finally accept it and do, try to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And that's when I went in, Lou says, Kenny, game's always here for you. He, like, that's what was great. If I didn't have that kind of spark, and the owner who was like a father to me, second father to me, John McMullen at the time was as big a supporter as Kenny. You will never, you know what I think of you and you've been here the longest and your job is not in jeopardy you go take care of yourself, you know? So without that kind of support, it would have been a lot more difficult, but it killed me because I was playing well. And I knew though, there was, that was the only way I was going to take notice. I'm the game's going to be taken away from me. And I needed that to try and see that I still wasn't sure, mm -hmm. even though I knew in my mind, I didn't want to admit it, that I had a drinking problem and I was more of a binger and a partier, but I, I, you know, learned a lot in rehab, learned, and then again, I tell people, because not to get too deep into it, you know, it takes a lot of courage, and yes, everybody thinks, you know, we're invincible at times, it's, we're human, and I, after that rehab, and after I came back and, and got sober for a while, I couldn't believe all the emails and letters I got from mothers saying, my son, because he saw you publicly went to rehab i was actually the first player to go into the program publicly there was other guys silently you know the nhl pa mm -hmm. um um whatever the nhl right. uh, substance uh, abuse uh, yeah substance abuse alcohol whatever mental health everything you know what i mean mm -hmm. i actually was the first one to go public which uh 
not proud of that, but I, I took that step and I didn't realize that. The, I didn't know until years later that I was the first guy. There was guys before me, but it's it's a private program. You don't have to go public and don't have to do it during the year. You know what I mean? Right. But I was like, I'm not going to prolong it. I got to take the game away from me and take this seriously and see what is going on with me. What's my problem? Why do I have a, uh, you know, an alcohol problem or why can't I stop when sometimes I want to stop? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So went away to rehab and again, I tell everybody it took me, I, I stayed sober for long spurts during my career. So important. Then I'd go back. There's very rarely a first time winner, even after rehab or rehabs and then back and forth. Then I'd stay, you know, sober for six months and I'd dabble again and then I'd go overboard and then I'd pull the reins back because I did have some kind of discipline and understood the game that how important my team was to me and the game was to me. I didn't want to jeopardize that. And then until after my career was over, after so celebrating again after winning the cup in 2003, like I said, so I wasn't a one first time winner, but the seeds were planted because I had some good sobriety during those times after 97 when I went public. But I want to make no mistake uh, uh, for people that know, don't give up because it took me three, four, five, ten more attempts hmm. before I finally got sober. And I'm proud to say uh, come this August, I'm nine years nine years sober and, and proud of it. I don't talk a lot about it, but anybody that wants to talk to me about it, I talk to former teammates that might go through some problems. If I can lend a hand, I said, there's no magic wand. There's no magic formula. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm blessed I, that I was able to get sober and have no desire to drink anymore. And I still have a good life. That was the hardest thing for me. I didn't know if I could one foot in one foot out. I was like, can I have fun without, cause I'm a fun gregarious guy that wants to be out can I have fun without alcohol? And I found out the answer, but I was using it as a crutch and excuse. Sometimes when I went back, screw it. I'm going to go back. I'm not, this is no fun either. You know what I mean? Right. So I was always on the fence, but it took me a few, t- few years after. And like I said, from 97, uh, till when did I finally get completely sober? 2011. So that's a lot of years in between. I had a lot of sobriety in between there, but then going back out for a couple months, going mm-hmm. back out for, a week going back out for a year. You know what I mean? So it took time because now I didn't have the game. I didn't have to be as good. So in my mind, I'm taking advantage of it, you know, (laughs) not recognizing the problem again. And Mm -hmm. uh, finally in 2011, some things occur. And, uh, you know, thank the mighty Lord. I kind of one day at a time, as they like to say, I, uh, put it all together and said, this is it. I'm done. I asked the big guy upstairs for some help, and since then, I've been sober and, uh, and really haven't had a day where I think about it, and that's a miracle to me in itself. But yes, anytime I, I hear from a mother or a kid or people that didn't even know, or now I get former teammates calling me around and, and, and inquiring, quizzing about it, hmm. and I go, you know what, that makes me feel, I don't want anybody to have a problem, but anybody I can help, I'm like, I, I, I don't have no I just tell them my experience and, and how I how I got sober and what I did. And you have to be serious. Are, are you ready to put put it down? That's it. And it took me 20 plus years to, to get it right. Well, good for you. And you went on to win two more Stanley Cups, 2000 and then 2003. Is it any different winning multiple after the first one, or is it still just as just as great? 
missed it once. I mean, like I said, been been real fortunate to win a few times when guys don't even uh, win it once in their career. But no, everyone had a different meaning. I get to ask the question a lot of what, what which one was better. Probably the first one because uh, that's uh, the first time you've won it and it's a dream come true. But for me, everyone had a different meaning. That first one was a whirlwind, was a party, was yes, a dream come true. Used to carry a silver garbage can over my head pretending it was the Stanley Cup as a 10-year-old playing street hockey. So your first goal is to play, second one's to win a Stanley Cup. Well, uh, we accomplished that uh, 12 years in my career, I, I guess it was. And then now we had a team that, you know, it was Stanley Cup or bust every year. It doesn't mean it's going to materialize, but certainly we knew we had a chance because we had a great core and led by the Broders and Stevens and Niedermeyers, all Hall of Famers, just great, great players and people. And I knew we were always going to have a have an opportunity with at the time but when we win the second one I really felt now I really understood what it took that was probably our best team and we thought we were the best team in Nash Hockey League on paper on the ice and we proved it and that was our best team of the three I believe but it, it, you really understood the, the sacrifice and the magnitude of what it is to win a Stanley Cup and how tough it is that was for me that, everybody has their own thoughts and feelings on it the, the guys that have won multiple cups and we had five guys that have won all three including Sergey Breland with the other three Hall of Famers I mentioned but for me the second one I really took in more almost mm. you know I really appreciated maybe even more than I did the first one don't get me wrong the first one I'm not going to say one was better than the other it just got better for me in this 2000 because I was a little more uh, I, I was a veteran. I was, I was a veteran of both, but more mature, more understanding. Yeah, you mentioned the rehab after 97. I just soaked everything in a little bit more, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then 2003, for me, my role's diminishing. I'm in and out of the lineup. My last game's a game seven, hoisting over my head. I mean, how many players uh, can say they, they went out on top of I mean, for me, that's a storybook ending, and mm -hmm. I don't even know. I was wondering the number because I don't think many guys have. I'm sure there's a handful, but I'm one of the few fortunate, lucky ones that my last game was a game seven. Wow. And then after a 20-year career at 39 years old, ready to turn 40, uh, hoisting a Stanley Cup, so it doesn't get any better than that. Even though you're old to Michelin, but that doesn't matter. That's, that's a pretty special way to go out, and I was very grateful to Pat Burns for putting me back in game seven uh, because I knew I was ready to retire, and as long as we won, uh, there was nothing else left to do except uh, uh, win a Stanley Cup and, and move on with my life. Oh, awesome. And then talk about moving on in your life. You worked a little in the Devils organization, which you still do. In 2006, you joined MSG Networks, various different roles. Did the TV part come naturally for you? It kind of did. I mean, I had been told or asked by a lot of reporters, even the last couple of years of my career, are you, are you interested in pursuing a broadcasting, some sort of career? You know, you're you're a good soundbite. You're a guy that's always there for for us and, and, and willing to engage. And I said, yeah, that's my personality. I didn't really know at the time, but they kind of planted a, a seed in my head. I wanted to stay in the game of hockey. I uh, eat, sleep, drink it. I felt I was a student of it. I was one of the players that knew every player anytime before game time, whether it was fighting ability, whether it was skill, whatever it may have been. Players would come to me and say, Kenny, what's this guy like? Even a guy coming up from the minors, because I was one of those guys. Some mm -hmm. guys don't watch it on TV. They play. They don't want to watch other games, players, teams. I was one of those guys who was watching 24-7, knew which hand a guy fought with, knew if a guy liked to cut to the inside more, a skilled, highly skilled player, or he had deceptive speed. I was just one of those guys. So I wanted to stay in the game in some capacity, certainly. I, you know, 
coaching didn't really enter my mind, although I, cause I think I'm too intense maybe at times, although I think a little bit of that passion is needed. You need a balance, but I wanted to maybe get involved in hockey operations along the way. I knew I was still young. Did I want to go to a farm team and minors and, and pay all the dues that you have to at the time? I, I didn't know. I'm not saying everybody has to, but right. you know, that's usually the route. So, you know, and, and I knew, you know, when I was done, Lou was going to give me an opportunity. I was working in the organization as well. Right after my career, we had worked something out, a long-term deal, which I was grateful for. And that was a reward for being um, being for the with the Devils for 20 years. Lou had worked out a long-term deal with me to do whatever they asked, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. as far as in the community. And that was easy for me because the fans were – or what it's all about for me, or whether it was corporate speaking, things like that along the way I did for them. And then, yeah, a couple of years after I retired, had the opportunity to do both and do some broadcasting pregame in between periods in 2006. I can't believe it goes back to 2006. That has <laughs> got, I talk about my career going fast. That's 14 uh, years yeah. from MSG. I, I, I'm, that blows me away. I can't believe I've been with <laughs> MSG Networks, and I've loved it. I've loved it. We had a great um, – Hockey show for eight years uh, with Duguay and Al Troudwig and Butch and other fill-ins along the way. Butch mm-hmm. Goring, Dave yeah. Maloney. You know, we had a blast with that. And we thought we were going to be off the air in three months. We started that doing that in Madison Square Garden, down below, kind of in a dungeon area, a small <laughs> room. But I, those and Stan Fisher was part of it, the Maven, and you know go on down the line we had all kinds of guys on but it's you know mainly me butch uh, uh ronnie duguay at the time and, and and al or bill pito those were fun times and we i, I really enjoyed it because there's so many laughs yeah we're all rooting for our team and all ripping each other <laughs> and saying you guys are this and our team's that and, you know those i, I love that camaraderie that was kind of doing broadcasting but like being on a team again but but against some of your enemies because those are guys even though they're dear friends and we had a show to do we're off air doing all those fun kinds of things like you do in a, you know ribbon guys in a locker room or a while or or in the off season playing golf our team's better than yours and even though we had nothing to do with the outcome anymore because <laughs> we were all we're all too um too old but when we did that show for about eight years that that was a lot of fun that's kind of how I even got more and more into broadcasting, doing the Devils games in between periods and, and pre-game, you know, uh, analysis as well. And then mm-hmm. got the opportunity to do the play-by-play, and I or, or play-by-play the color along Steve Cangelosi, and I don't even know how long I've done that for. I don't count years, but I think I've already done it. Am I going into my fifth year? I think 2014 was your first year. I believe. Is that when I started? Yeah. So I'm already up to six years now. <laughs> <laughs> I've already finished five. I, I I just can't believe how how time flies, but uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. And MSG's been great as well. And so uh, uh, I do a little bit of both in some NHL network. I've done a lot in the last eight, nine years as kind of one of their guys in the bullpen, but they've used me a lot. I get to talk hockey. I mean, how lucky am I? And that's right. what I love. You know, as mentioned earlier, you're known as Mr. Devil. The De- love Devils fans have for you is insurmountable. My friend Kyle has been a diehard Rangers fan since he was a kid, but you were one of his favorite players of all time, and I know wow. he's and I know he's and I know he's not alone. And I think it speaks volumes for the amount of respect you receive from players and fans around the league. What what did you do as a player that spoke to fans from other teams or players? Well, look. First off, I've always respected the fans. It didn't matter what city I am, because without and I, I sometimes it sounds almost corny, but I do. You know. You, you, your parents teach you that. Treat everybody 
like how you'd like to be treated. Well, I love the game of hockey. Yeah, they're rooting against us, but fans are fans. They they're they're loving our game, and uh, you you even understand it more after you retire. Where I, I appreciate all fan bases. Like yeah, I, I love my fan base. Love the New Jersey Devils. I love how they're so passionate, and they they get in arguments with Ranger fans or Flyer fans, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, they're all fans of our great game. So I always always respected that. Always. You know, used to wonder why, well, that person's got my autograph 50 times or they've taken a picture with me 32 <laughs> times. Why do they want it again? Or why am I going to do it again? Right. And, and, you know, in all sincerity, why I do it every single time, for the most part, unless you obviously have somewhere to go or do, is because they may be having a bad day in that picture. And then I'll see on social media, now we can read and see everything. Mm-hmm. You made my day by shaking my hand. Like, right. that still blows me away because I'm still the – seven-year-old kid back in Edmonton, Alberta, that, uh, and, and I'm grateful for that. My mentality hasn't changed. I'm a blue-collar guy that had to work for everything. So I understand if somebody's having a bad day, well, maybe it, 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 that amazes me, but I love that about fans. So even in other cities, you get a, if I get a tweet or, or a share on Instagram that I'm a diehard Ranger fan or I'm a diehard Bruin fan, but it was really nice to meet you at the game in the hallway or whatever, and you took a picture with us, and, and it was real nice of you. Like, those things, they mean the world, mm-hmm. you know, especially for the game that's been so good to me. So I, I try to respect, appreciate all fans. No, some try to get under your skin. Of course they do, and that's okay, too. They're passionate. I get it. I used to get flustered early on in social media and want to go back at somebody that said something negative. But you know what? They just want a reaction. I've had that where I've kind of been polite and gone back at somebody. And they go, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. I just, <laughs> I just wanted to see if you. I can't believe you responded. <laughs> so I, and then I love. It. I said, no problem, man. All good. You know, I just want everybody to get along. <laughs> but especially in our hockey community. But yeah, I love my Devils fans because they treated me like gold throughout the years. And I'll tell you one good ending story. You speak about Ranger fans and our big rivalry, and, and I expect that because that's fans are passionate. Mm-hmm. They've got the right to get angry, happy, joyous whatever their emotions are at the time. <clears throat> my first few years, you talk about 2006, I'm doing some devil stuff and even for the games in New York. And I kind of walked in there and want, sort of try to hunch over so they didn't see my face. And I'd hear a few explicits <laughs> when people follow me from my back, Danico, you, you know what, blah, blah, blah. And the words I can't use. And I'm like, Oh God. And so I used to dread going, into the garden and go, oh, I don't, I'm going to take abuse here before I get to the booth, you know, because I kind of had to walk through whether it was outside. And I did for the first few years. Now, four or five years, they were like me. You start to reflect. Remember, now all of a sudden I'm getting, hey, Danico, hated you when you played, but you're doing a great job on TV or great to see you and you're a good guy, whatever it may be. That's awesome. Like the, the narrative has changed. Right. And I love that because – they're, I love it because they're passionate. It was just like my narratives changed as my career's further along and how much I appreciate players that I hated and fans that maybe were on me. I get it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I now I go to New York for the most part. And there's always, uh, you know, the odd one. But for the most part, it's when they say that they hated me, that meant I was doing my job. Right. You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> on the ice. And they're so respectful now, even when, you know, we play the two teams play each other here, and, and Flyers fans no different, or whoever your rivalries are. But throughout the National Hockey League, so I'm grateful for that. 
because I consider myself a hockey fan as well, first and foremost. And whether my team's good, bad, indifferent, not in the playoffs like they are now, I'm watching every game besides working for NHL Network, but not just because of that, because I like to see storylines and, and fan bases get excited and see their team go through a progression, just like my teams did to eventually winning the Stanley Cup. And those things are all great. But, yeah, I used to take some abuse my first couple of years going <laughs> into the garden when I had to do some devil stuff on TV. And I, I, I tell you, I wanted, I started to wear a hat and I'm covering up. <laughs> I'm, and then after that, it, 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 the narrative changed completely. And all coming up to me, saying hello, taking pictures, and telling me they hated me. And I said, well, I, I appreciate that because that means – and they go, yes, because we respect what you did on the ice but uh, and keep up the good work. That's, that's all part of it. <laughs> Some people reflect. Uh, do you ever reflect on the career you've had and think about it and just kind of uh, smile? Well, like I said, I'm, I'm a, a student of the game. I love to talk. I'm, I'm gregarious, all those kinds of things. But in general, not too often. And then every once in a while, I'll take a step back, especially now during this pandemic we have no hockey and msg has all the the games on especially the first six weeks or so a lot of games that i was part of and, and some of my great teammates i like to reminisce and look at and that's when you reflect and i watch a lot of those classic games on msg uh, of uh, so many the 88 game when in chicago when we just made the playoffs, remembering teammates like that i'm going oh that guy was so good we go on with our lives and you can't keep up with everybody you know what i mean so, or, or they show games from 95 or 94, whatever it may be, and just the different teammates that you appreciate and, and just don't talk about anymore or see. And, and that's when I reminisce more a little bit, especially now during uh, when we don't have the game. But MSG was great showing a lot of those old-time games of all three local teams, you know, on the different channels, mm -hmm. MSG Plus and MSG and everything else. So I got to – I really did get to reflect and, and digress a little and take a little bit, you know – have a little – I'd still got some goosebumps watching the games and watching me play, and I'm still critiquing myself, going, oh, that was a bad play. I had more time with the puck. Like, I'm going – my wife's sitting there going, Kenny, it's 25 years later, and by the way, you won the Stanley Cup that year. I go, I know, but that was such a bad play. I had a bad game. <laughs> Dead serious. That's how crazy I am. Like, I'm going, oh, if I knew what I knew now, I would have done that so differently. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm watching games, and she's howling at me, going, what are you, nuts? You won the game. You won the Cup. And yeah, and then I, I, I yeah, about it. I said, yeah, but I didn't play very well that night. I, or I had a bad period, and I made a – threw the puck away and if I would have done known now I had more time <laughs> we're always wiser when we're old that's right <laughs> but uh, but she said things worked out just the way, right. and she she brings it back puts it back in perspective for me but that's when I started my reminisce as much as I like to talk hockey everything I, I didn't think so much of my career as, as yes the championships and you know, the, I think of the fans and how good they've been to me and the hard work I had to put in I always say, though, no. They say to you, I, I would have loved to have Scott Niedemeyer's legs for a couple of games. I mean, I think I could have been all world. <laughs> <laughs> with my intensity and toughness, if I had Niedemeyer's legs, but we, we do with what we have. And I knew my role and understood it and understood what I could and couldn't do and where your talent level's at. But I always think, yeah, I just, I wanted more, more, more. Like, I, Niedemeyer was the best skater I've ever seen. <laughs> smoothest skater I've ever seen. I said, I just want those legs for one game. You know what I mean? I still say that at 56 years old. <laughs> so, 
so those are the reminiscent, the crazy thoughts that go through my mind at times. And, uh, you know, so, but uh, I played with some, some great ones and Stevens and one of the greatest goalies all time, Broder. And, and that's what, I, that's what I reflect on. Like you don't appreciate it as much when you're in it. Mm-hmm. And then when, it, <coughs> excuse me, when it's all over, all over and <coughs> said and done with, excuse me, that, um, you start to look back and go, man, I played with some great players. That was, I was pretty fortunate. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, you reflect a little bit more. That's all. But uh, that's more what I look at, especially watching some of the MSG classics along the way. Well, Dano, you've had an amazing career. I appreciate your time and your stories. It's uh, it's a lot of fun to listen to you. Uh, my pleasure, man. Good to be on with you. It's uh, it's like therapy for me as well. I hope everybody's safe and healthy. And as we transition and try to get back to normal, new normal, whatever that may be, but. Uh, I hope everybody can get back to work soon, and it seems that businesses and things are going to open up a little bit more, but we just got to be safe and, uh, and get back to our lives. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. All right, pal. Take care. Good being on with you. Thanks. So many good stories from Dano. You could tell why he was so well-respected around the league. For someone who didn't know where New Jersey was when he was drafted, Dano is still the face of the Devils franchise all these years later. He is not only a presence behind the mic, but he is heavily involved in the community as well. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mike Check on Sports. Take care. Brush your hair.